Hello and welcome to this podcast from the BBC World Service. Please let us know what you think and tell other people about us on social media. Podcasts from the BBC World Service are supported by advertising. Hello, I'm Claudia Hammond. Welcome to Health Check from the BBC. This is the show with the latest medical research and health news from around the world. And I love this story. Scientists have discovered that we all have two extra salivary glands deep inside our heads that no one knew were there until now. I didn't realize people would be so excited about salivary glands. Uh, I thought that that was something that nerds like me in radiation oncology would be interested in. And I have a new guest for the whole show today. Welcome to Dr. Tabitha Mwangi, who is a lecturer in public health at Anglia Ruskin University in the UK. And I know that before you came to the UK, you spent many years doing research in Kenya. What, what sort of diseases were you studying? I was studying malaria and I helped to set up a large study just following up about 1,000 people to look at the clinical patterns of malaria, see the age, uh, the clinical presentation and uh, just quantifying and describing malaria in the region. Did you find any surprises? Not really. They were about to uh, run a malaria vaccine study and they wanted to just know baseline data. What did malaria look like? What was the distribution? And so that you can monitor any changes over time. Yeah, vital work there. Well, welcome to Health Check, Tabitha. Thank you for being our guest today. We are starting with encouraging news this week about new approaches to treat one of the commonest of inherited blood disorders, sickle cell disease, which mainly affects people of African ancestry. In sickle cell disease, a mutation in one gene causes a malformation in the substance found in red blood cells, haemoglobin. As a result, the red blood cells become sickle-shaped and this can clog blood vessels, causing episodes of severe pain, damage to organs and an increased risk of stroke. Transplants of bone marrow from siblings can make a difference, but for most patients there is no suitable donor. Now, two teams have succeeded in dramatically improving the health of a number of young people with the disease, admittedly a very small number so far, but using new experimental treatments. One relies on the gene editing technique called CRISPR, and the other uses gene therapy to fix the malfunctioning blood cells, relieving people's symptoms considerably. At Boston Children's Hospital in the US, where the gene therapy took place, Dr. Erica Esrick is a paediatric haematologist and David Williams is chief scientific officer. He told me how the treatment works. This gene therapy is basically reversing the normal process by which a baby's uh, red blood cells express a special type of hemoglobin called fetal hemoglobin. And when babies are born, they switch to adult hemoglobin. And quite simply, the adult hemoglobin in patients with sickle cell disease caused the disease. That's where the mutation, that's the gene the mutation is in. So when we switch back to fetal hemoglobin, you basically switch off sickle cell disease. And so the idea is that then people would have normally shaped red blood cells again and they wouldn't be experiencing the, the really horrible, difficult symptoms that they can experience. Erica, how, how does the therapy work in practice? What do you have to, to do uh, with the patient? Um, so the first step is to collect the patient's own blood stem cells using um, basically IV lines to collect blood filter out the cells that we want to collect, which is a a type of white blood cells, and put all the other blood back in. Um, And then those blood stem cells that are collected go off to the cell processing lab, where they're mixed together with our 
lentiviral vector, which is the carrier for the gene that, genes that we want to put in, then the cells are ready to be infused or put back into the patient. And then the patient comes back to the hospital to our bone marrow transplant unit, and the patient needs to receive medication, which is chemotherapy medication, to prepare their own bone marrow to receive the blood stem cells back. The patient is admitted to the hospital for a number of weeks, waiting for those new blood stem cells to take root and start to grow. So it is a very involved process that in, in, involves the patient in, in having to, to undergo quite a lot. And then your team is reporting on how uh, six patients have done after receiving this therapy. How, how long ago did they have it, Erica? The longest ago treated patient was 29 months ago. And the most recent reported patient was about seven months ago. And David, how have they done? They've done quite well, actually. You know, there's two principal components of the disease, sickle cell disease. One is the anemia, and the other is these painful episodes that over time end up harming the organs of the person because the pain is due to the sickle-shaped cells clogging up the arteries that feed oxygen to organs. And so that leads to both pain and then damage, as you can imagine. For these patients that we reported to this point, they've had none of these painful episodes at all since we've treated them. And uh, their anemias, they haven't gone away, but their anemia has substantially improved. And they all are doing well without requiring uh, any medicines or transfusions, except for the There's one patient that had a special condition that we decided even before we treated him that we would continue his transfusions even after the treatment. But other than that, uh, they're all doing uh, quite well. So they're pleased and we're pleased, basically. Erica, I'm guessing this must have really changed the quality of life for these patients. Yes. So I've heard from patients about the things that they're able to do now that they weren't able to do before one of our teenage patients talks about how she's able to swim without any concern. All of the patients are feeling well and in participating in life normally. And David, a bone marrow transplant, of course, is not without risks. What sort of side effects have you seen or are there potential issues with with safety with this kind of treatment? Yeah, that's a great question. So first of all, it's a treatment that requires a prolonged hospitalization while the new marrow, the genetically engineered marrow uh, takes, that takes usually about a month. During that time, they're in special laminar flow rooms to keep them safe from infections and their white counts are quite low during that time. And they have from the conditioning treatment that Erica also mentioned, which is a chemotherapy agent, they get sores in their mouths They can get other GI upsets like uh, diarrhea and cramping, and those are expected and we've seen. But overall, I think they've tolerated the treatment pretty well, and almost all the patients have been discharged from the hospital in good shape after three to four weeks. Now, four of your six patients are still doing well after more than 18 months since the therapy, and it's two and a half years for one of them. But David, is there still a question about how long the effects might last? Absolutely. And that's a very important point. Durability is a a big question. Um, And we will be following these patients for a total of 15 years, actually. So you're exactly right. It's a very good question. 
And Erica, there are other treatments such as having a bone marrow transplant with bone marrow from a donor or um, there's a drug that can get the body to produce fetal haemoglobin again. What would you say is the advantage of this kind of treatment or is it particular patients who would benefit from this? It's actually a very exciting time in the sickle cell community because there's a lot of advances happening right now. The, the drug that you mentioned, hydroxyurea or hydroxycarbamide, it in, in many patients increases fetal hemoglobin, but it doesn't work perfectly in every patient and, of course, requires a daily medication. Other types of bone marrow transplants, what's called a matched sibling bone marrow transplant, is the safest and most effective option. Um, And that's where you have a brother or sister who matches at certain white blood cell protein level. Unfortunately, though, only maybe 20% or even less of patients with sickle cell disease happen to have a matched sibling who doesn't also have sickle cell disease. So that is not an option for most patients with sickle cell disease. Um, So our trial was only open to patients who do not have a matched sibling available since that treatment would be considered standard of care. And David, in the same edition of the New England Journal of Medicine in which your brand new research is published, another group of researchers has used a different type of experimental genetic treatment, gene editing. Um, And they have got some encouraging early results at the moment. Do you think that genetic therapies for sickle cell disease are coming of age or, or is it still very much early days? It's both. It's very, it's very early days for all these therapies. But I think what listeners should take away from the conversation is a proof of principle that this, these two types of therapies, either one of them, appear successful in significantly changing the disease uh, to the point where these patients are living their lives as if they don't have sickle cell disease, which is quite an amazing thing. And so I think it's not ready at all yet for widespread use, certainly not ready for developing countries, although we certainly have that on our radar screen for the future. But I think it is the fact that, you know, here we are about 30 years into the development of gene therapy in general. And this looks like a very promising approach to using the gene therapy tools, both the previous ones, uh, which we use, which are viral vectors that have a long history of of safe work in lentiviruses. That's the type of vector we use, but also in this new method, which was also reported, which is gene editing. So I think we, Eric and I, are both thrilled that as clinicians taking care of our patients, we're very happy that there's going to be, it looks like, multiple approaches that are going to be helpful to patients, not just genetic therapies, but new medicines also. David Williams and Erica Esrick at Boston's Children's Hospital. And they're beginning a larger trial with 25 patients around the USA from January. Now, Tabitha Mwangi is still with me. And you have a fascinating study from the journal The Lancet on preventing malaria deaths by getting children to take malaria tablets once a month just during the rainy season. And it's known as seasonal malaria chemo prevention. What is the idea behind it? So the idea behind it is that if you treat children every month during the malaria season, then it means that they already have the drugs in their system and they will not suffer from disease even if they get infected. But it has to be done every 28 days. It's very much like the way tourists have anti-malarial drugs when they come into a malaria-infected area. You have the drugs in use that if you get infected, the malaria parasites will not cause disease. 
And so they take tablets for three consecutive days, but only once a month, and that protects them. And, th- and this new study is very large, isn't it? Yes, it's huge. So they looked at uh, data collected between 2015 and 2016. And in 2015, there were 3.7 million children that were treated. And in 2016, 7.6 million. So huge numbers of children across six countries. And this took place in a particular part of Africa, didn't it? Yes, so it's the part of Africa just south of the Sahara Desert, so the Sahel region. And that includes countries like Burkina Faso, the Gambia, Niger, northern Nigeria, Chad. And the children were given two drugs in combination once a month in the four months of the malaria season, which is also the four months of the rainy season. And how much of a difference did this treatment make? It was amazing what happened with the treatment because they found that uh, giving this treatment over the malaria season reduced mortality by between 45% to 57%. So that's really high mortality reduction. So that was really, really good. And as someone who has studied malaria for many years, how significant do you think this is in terms of attempts to combat the disease? This is extremely important. In an area where malaria is restricted within just four months of the malaria season, it's really good to have something that you can implement that can be spread across the whole population so nobody is left behind. You can give bed nets. Of course, those those work as well, and they work very, very well. But um, it's easier to control medication, and that means that you can really help a particular community during a malaria season. And it's a huge. when you think about the numbers, it's a huge number of, of children that are being protected, and that's really important if you can reduce mortality by 45%, by 53%. That's really huge. And are there any potential concerns about giving millions of young, healthy children malaria tablets for four months each year? The things that we're looking at is also the development of drug resistance. So, of course, if you do mass drug administration, then these other parasites could develop resistance against these drugs. So they are monitoring that. And also there is the you know, the risk of having severe adverse reactions to the drugs. And they did monitor that. And they found that when you consider that, you know, huge numbers of children were under under treatment, there were no serious adverse events, no, you know, really serious ones. There were skin reactions and, you know, the usual responses to drugs, but there were no really severe adverse reactions. So that was really good because that was one thing that they had to monitor. And I saw that the tablets were often delivered door to door. That must be yeah. pretty challenging in some places and to reach this many children. It's impressive. Yeah, they had huge numbers of community health workers that were involved, you know, tens of thousands of community health workers. And initially they had a big job to do because you had to crush the drugs and mix them in a paste in order to give the children. So that was quite a bit of work. But right now the drugs are better because they can just be dropped into a bit of water and they dissolve in water very easily and they feed the children. So the initial start of the study, there was quite a bit of work for the community health workers to do. And there are tens of thousands of them involved in this work. Is this a malaria prevention strategy that is particularly suited to this region of West and Central Africa? Or do you think it could be useful elsewhere? I think it's quite useful in the Sahel region because of the malaria season that you just have, you know, four months of a malaria season. Uh, in the areas where you have malaria all year round, you know, the, the central zone where there's a lot of malaria DRC and Uganda, where there's uh, all year round malaria transmission, it's almost impossible to do that because the children would have to be under treatment every month, every, you know, the whole year. And that's just uh, not feasible. And will this continue being used, though, in the countries like the Gambia and Burkina Faso that took part in this study? 
Yes, I think there's a lot of effort, the Malaria Consortium, there's a lot of funding that has uh, come in to maintain these programs. And because the systems have been put in place now, it has been really accepted by the communities because the communities are seeing the difference. And once you have community acceptance of something, then maintaining it is going to be that much easier because the community is going along with you. Well, thank you very much, Tabitha, and do stay with us. Now, the very first vaccinations against the coronavirus have been given this week and hopes are high, but many countries are still finding their infection levels are on the rise. So we thought we'd ask our BBC global health correspondent, Naomi Grimley, to round up what's been happening where for us. So first of all, where are cases rising fastest? The news from the US does seem to get grimmer. It does indeed. The situation in America is not good at all, partly because we're now seeing the Thanksgiving surge feed through. Uh, So we've had several days now of case numbers over 200,000. And particularly badly affected is California. It's had new infections uh, this week of around 30,000 every day. And for that reason, the governor, Gavin Newsom, has uh, closed bars, hair salons, indoor restaurants. Also, he's telling Californians to stay at home as much as they can. And they're desperately hoping that way they can push their intensive care capacity back up to levels where they can cope. And a lot of other countries have also been putting in new lockdown measures, haven't they, after they've seen a second surge? That's right, yes. Well, Sweden, which of course famously has been part of a debate over whether it's best to have a more laissez-faire, relaxed approach to it and leave it up to um, personal judgment, they now seem to have acknowledged that they do need to embrace stricter measures, things like curfews, curbs on alcohol sales uh, and schools going online. Uh, Also, interestingly, Germany, that's another country which has been praised over the last few months for having a good performance. However, it's pretty obvious that their lockdown light, as it was termed in November, hasn't really worked as much as had been hoped. Uh, So tougher measures are being brought in in Bavaria, uh, things again like curfews, also uh, making sure that more teaching is done online uh, and it's thought that other states may follow. And South Korea, which has been so successful from the start in containing the virus, has seen rising cases. That's right. There's a worry there's a new spike in and around Seoul. So there are more social distancing measures being brought in there. Also, uh, there are demands that test and trace operate for longer hours. That's the suggestion from the authorities. Now, it still looks pretty tame when you put it in the context of what many Western countries are experiencing. Remember, South Korea has only actually experienced around 550 deaths. That's obviously way down on what Britain, for example, has seen, which is 60,000 deaths. However, for a country which has kept on top of the problem so well over the last few months, it's still a, a sort of worrying experience. And that's why the government is saying that much more needs to be done. Test and trace stepped up. Uh, they're also looking at new things like saliva tests being brought in to beef up their surveillance system. But the good news is that the first vaccinations against the virus are being given this week. Uh, they've already started in the UK and, and Russia's following suit too. 
That's right. Uh, Russia has started doing it to the wider public. Previously, healthcare workers had been given it, but they're now rolling it out, starting with Moscow. And one really interesting thing there is that they're going to, or they are vaccinating teachers in their initial cohort. Uh, so uh, that isn't necessarily the case in other countries. In Britain, for example, they're starting with the elderly and healthcare workers. But uh, in Moscow, they, they definitely want social uh, workers and school teachers to be amongst the first to get it. Uh, and it should be rolled out uh, further across the country uh, in the next few weeks. Of course, Russian, the Russian vaccine is still undergoing testing, but there are many countries, particularly in the developing world, that are going to be looking to it to help fill the shortfall on vaccines globally. And Indonesia is looking at plans for vaccination there. That's right. Indonesia has seen uh, a batch of vaccines, well, 1.2 million doses flown in of the Sinovac vaccine. That's the, one of the Chinese ones. And uh, they are hoping to have another delivery of that in the new year, another 1.8 million doses. So that's an, another example of a country looking towards the east for a solution Indonesia has a particular challenge. It's 6,000 islands, remember, so they've got to roll it out uh, in a way that is perhaps more logistically challenging than the rest of the world. But of course, this is just a handful of countries that we've been discussing and concerns have been expressed by some NGOs that there are many people in the world who are going to miss out. That's right. In fact, there's been some analysis from a group of NGOs and charities, including Amnesty International and also Oxfam, who say that they think as many as nine out of 10 people in poor countries might miss out on COVID-19 vaccines next year. This is primarily because, of course, rich countries have swooped in and bought up the leading candidates, certainly the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, although the Oxford one promises to be more of a global solution. But these charities want pharmaceutical companies to think a bit more about whether they should share their technology, share their um, intellectual property rights in order to allow these vaccines to be made more widely across the world and therefore beef up supply. Because until that happens, they are, of course, a scarcity. Well, thank you very much, Naomi Grimley, for joining us from the BBC Newsroom with that roundup. This is Health Check from the BBC. I'm Claudia Hammond and my guest today is Dr Tabitha Mwangi from Anglia Ruskin University in the UK. Now, there's a new idea that's been trialled in South Africa and Uganda that I want to ask you about, Tabitha, and it concerns tuberculosis testing. Now, when I visited TB clinics in South Africa, people were going into little booths to cough up sputum into special funnels, so then it could be sent off for testing in the lab to see whether they had TB and needed to start on antibiotics. But this new system that's been tested was using a quick pen and paper method of working out how likely each patient was to have it so they could start treatment sooner. So what is the problem with waiting for test results to come back from the lab? Why does that matter so much? It matters a lot because, you know, once people have gone to a clinic, they presented, they've got symptoms and they they leave a, a sample for testing. They go back home and then they have to wait until the results are, are ready and then they have to go back again to the health centre to get the results and start treatment. So that gap 
during the time when they're waiting for the results from the laboratory to come back, a lot of people may not return. So in fact, studies have shown that in Asia, around 13% of people don't return. People who are actually positive, microbiological results are positive, they don't return for treatment. In Africa, roughly 2 out of 10 who are actually positive do not return for treatment. So you're losing quite a number of people who should be on treatment because they're having to wait for the for the lab results to come out. And those people who are not coming back for treatment are continuing to spread the infection in the community and they are themselves getting worse. So if you can start them on treatment early, it means that you have reduced mortality, those people would survive, and also you have reduced the spread of the disease within the population where they live. So how does this pen and paper test work? So it's an interesting one. So what the researchers have done is come up with a list of characteristics and clinical symptoms that people who are most likely to have TB will have. So there are things like, you know, being HIV positive, uh, having a cough and a fever over a period of over two weeks, being of a certain age, being male. So there's just certain very simple characteristics that if you add up and you have a score of more than eight, then it shows that you're more likely to be TB positive, that your test is likely to come out positive. So instead of letting you go home and then come back again when the results are ready, they just start you on treatment immediately. And so they won't lose you because you will continue with treatment you know when even when the results come back and they're positive you've already started the treatment so it means that you're reducing the amount of time you spread uh, the disease in the community and also improving survival for you as an individual so in a way they're looking at all sorts of different factors and weighing up the odds of whether the person is likely to have it or not and, and was it effective in this study was it effective in getting the right people it was very good at picking up uh, people who are more likely to have TB in areas with high HIV. So you think of South Africa where the study was done, there was 17% prevalence of HIV. Uganda where the test was also validated had high HIV. So in such areas, it was quite good at picking people who had microbiology tests that were positive, a good number of those. Where do you think this is most likely to be useful? I think in areas where HIV is, is high, in, in poor resource settings where people are not able to get uh, laboratory tests within the day. So if you produce your sputum, sputum sample, you have to go home and wait for a couple of weeks before your results come out. So this is very useful. So if you're most likely to have TB, then you'll start your treatments early. Thank you, Tabitha. Now, after centuries of dissecting the human body, you'd think by now scientists would know everything there is to know about our anatomy. But two doctors in the Netherlands appear to have discovered something extraordinary. A pair of large extra salivary glands deep inside our heads that till now had lurked undetected. And fascinating as that is, this is more than an anatomical curiosity. It has implications for the way that patients with head and neck cancer undergo radiation treatment, as Health Check producer Andrew Luck-Baker reports. Matthijs Volstar is one of the doctors at the Netherlands Cancer Institute who looks to have rewritten the textbooks. According to the anatomy books, for becoming a doctor, you learn there are three pairs of major salivary glands located around the face, just in front of your ears and just under the jaws and under the tongue. So three pairs. That's been the received wisdom for more than 300 years. But in fact, says Dr Volstar, there are four pairs. These new structures are located right in the middle of the head, on the right and left side of it. So it's a difficult part to reach, and that partly explains why it has never been noticed before. I was quite shocked, to be honest. You know, it's been hundreds of years since we've discovered a new organ in the human body. 
Yvonne Maori is a cancer physician at Duke University in the United States. One of her specialities is treating head and neck cancer with radiotherapy, so she knows this part of the body very well. Even though I think it's debatable whether this should be considered a major salivary gland or a minor salivary gland, they have really convincingly shown that this is a discrete new entity um, that had not been previously identified on, on imaging or just on dissections of humans. And it's not that these structures, which have been named the tuberial glands, are particularly small. They're about three centimetres long. But they are thin, which may account for them hiding undetected where the back of the nasal cavity meets the throat. Volta Vogel, another of the Dutch team. You cannot see it or palpate it, or you need endoscopy or something to get even close. And I think that since these structures are composed of lots of little glands, it would be somewhat difficult without really specifically looking for it to see that it was one contiguous structure. I think really the, the key here was this molecular imaging that they did with the PSMA PET that showed that these were a distinct structure that just could not be visualized on the standard imaging that we normally use, like CT and, and MRI. So it was a sophisticated kind of imaging, primarily developed to detect the spread of prostate cancer cells around the body, that led Matthias Volster and Volter Vogel to spot these salivary glands for the first time in a few scans. Because this particular PET imaging technique also illuminates salivary gland tissues. Walter sent me an email saying, what is this thing in the middle? And I, I replied to him, saying, well, I was thinking the same thing. There shouldn't be anything, according to the books. And then we thought, OK, this is either is something else than uh, a saliva gland or something completely new. But hey, that's impossible. We thought, well, that's really not an option. And we thought that if this is a salivary gland, then immediately it must be relevant uh, because salivary glands are important. So the saliva glands provide saliva that is lubricating, that helps us with swallowing. It helps with actually being able to sense taste. It helps with even be able, being able to speak and overall comfort. After spotting the glands in several images, the Dutch team then dissected two human cadavers and found the salivary gland tissue exactly where the scan showed it to be. But at this stage, the sample size was small. Walter Vogel. But then we went to contact uh, colleagues in Utrecht and we checked 100 scans and it became clear to us that everybody has this. So then we became confident that this is really something uh, that needed to be investigated. Yvonne Maori agrees. In fact, she'd like to see a study of scans from a more diverse group of people. 99 of the 100 patients who had imaging were men and I would like to see another study with a larger cohort of women and a wider range of ages, since these were also um, generally patients in their 50s to 80s, just to make sure that this is really generalizable. And if all of us do really have this fourth major salivary gland, it will have implications for the treatment of head and neck cancer. As a head and neck radiation oncologist, I think about saliva glands every day because the radiation dose that is given to the saliva glands has one of the biggest impacts on patients' quality of life in the long term after getting radiation to the head and neck. So the, the biggest complaint that I hear from patients in the years after they've had head and neck radiation is persistent dry mouth and how that often affects what they're able to eat day to day. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Uh, as a radiation oncologist, I do treat patients with head and neck cancer and we, we are able to cure many of them. 
but uh, many patients end up with this dry feeling because we damaged the salivary glands. Now, we know where they are, and we try to spare them. But this one, you know, we just did not know about, and we have never been able to spare it. And this seems to explain at least a part of the complaints that these patients ended up having. We looked back at a series of more than 700 patients together with our colleagues from the UMC Groningen, and we were able to show an association between the dose that was given to this gland location and the complaints that patients ended up having after the treatment. So this proves that the gland is important for these patients. I'd say it's still too soon for it to affect my practice. I would like to see this in at least one other study, and ideally really in a prospective study um, where these uh, where these glands are actually contoured and the dose to them are measured and patients are followed long-term for these outcomes, such as the dry mouth and swallowing issues. You always want to see something independently validated with a second data set. In the meantime, Yvonne Maori is just pleased the spotlight has fallen on one of her favourite parts of the body. I didn't realise people would be so excited about salivary glands. Um, I thought that that was something that nerds like me in radiation oncology would be interested in. Andrew Luck-Baker reporting and Tabitha Mwangi is my special guest today. And before we go, there's a new paper out on a topic close to my own heart and that is growing vegetables. Do you grow vegetables, Tabitha? No, <laughs> I don't have green fingers. I don't grow vegetables at the moment. Yes, yeah, so I can I can do flowers and other things, but I must say my vegetables mainly feed the wildlife a bit more than me with mice <laughs> and squirrels and foxes and oh, you name it. But in, in various low and middle income countries, projects have been launched to encourage women to grow a range of vegetables at home in the hope of improving their children's health. And lots of studies on this have been brought together. What is the idea behind these projects? The idea is that if you encourage women to grow fruits and vegetables that are rich in vitamin A, they'll feed this to their children and their children will have better health, especially when it comes to night blindness, which is as a result of vitamin A deficiency. So the idea is that if you teach women how to grow these crops, show them how to cook them, then you're likely to have an impact on their child's health. And often it involves orange vegetables like sweet potatoes and and carrots. And does it make a difference to the children's health? What benefits could the researchers find from these studies? The researchers did not find much of a difference with night blindness, but that's mainly because it was not measured. It was not an outcome in any of the studies that were observed. But they did find that there was a, a slight improvement in height. So children whose mothers were in these studies who were growing vegetables were not stunted. They had good height for their age. They also had good weight for their age and good weight for their their height. So there was less wasting and less underweight children among the group of children whose mothers were growing these vegetables and keeping chickens for these studies. So does it seem to you as if it's something that's that's worth doing? Because in a way, it's quite a simple intervention. Yeah, it seems to me that uh, it's worth doing and maybe better studies need to, need to be done so they can actually get the outcomes they are looking for. Uh, maybe bigger studies in order to be able to, you know, have the numbers. But it looks like something that is very doable, especially because uh, vitamin A deficiency is mainly around rural areas. And in rural areas in a lot of Africa, a lot of people will have a little piece of land where they can grow something. So this is something that is likely to have a good impact in a rural area if it's really, uh, you know, practiced in, a, in a large populations, then you might be able to see the impact. 
Well, thank you very much, Tabitha Mwangi from Anglia Ruskin University for joining us today. And thanks to the producer, Andrew Luck Baker. And thank you for all the questions you've been sending in to me for the evidence. Our next episode will be on vaccines against the coronavirus. So if you have any questions on vaccinations or other aspects of the virus, do email them to the.evidence at bbc.co.uk or you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Claudia Hammond. Do join me for the next episode of Health Check from the BBC. And if you'd like something else to listen to, here is the excellent Marnie Chesterton with news of crowd science. I like that. I don't think I like that. This is the sound of crowd science. <laughs> Those very alarming sounds around. It's quite normal. This quite. is what women want. They want a man that can eat a stick. I have a brilliant trowel. Um, <laughs> what you should see now is a cloud. No way. Each week, the Crowd Science Podcast answers your questions about life, Earth and the universe. Are there foreseeable limits to knowledge? It's an excellent question. Actually, it's a very deep question. With the help of scientists around the world who are trying to find new answers themselves. We think that people have a little more control over their brainwaves than they think they do. That's Crowd Science from the BBC World Service. We smash things together and we'll see what happens. Just search for Crowd Science wherever you get your podcasts. You've got brain freeze. <laughs>